We're going to be in Exodus chapter 19 this morning, as you may have discerned through the worship time. This is just an incredible chapter, and uh, if you need a bulletin, there's an uh, outline in the bulletin. You can grab one now or later. Uh, there should be some sermon booklets, uh, at least these two exits that are kind of have a blue cover this week, and there's a lot more verses and other stuff in there that I don't have time to cover in this message. We're, if you're visiting with us, we're working through the life of Moses and uh, all of the messages, not only these, but the last uh, 26 years worth are on our church website. You can access either printed or audio copies there. I'm going to read Mos uh, the word that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai as recorded in Exodus 19. In the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. When they set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness, and there Israel camped in front of the mountain. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now then, if you'll indeed obey my voice, and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud, so that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe in you forever. And then Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. The Lord also said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Beware that you don't go up on the mountain or touch the border of it. For whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through. Whether man or beast, he shall not live. When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. So it came about on the third day when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp, 
to meet God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace. And the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, go down and warn the people so that they don't break through to the Lord to gaze and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves or else the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, the people <clears throat> cannot come up to Mount Sinai for you warned us saying, set bounds around the mountain and consecrate it. Then the Lord said to him, go down and come up again, you and Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord or he will break forth upon them. And so Moses went down to the people and told them. Have you ever had a mountaintop experience with God? That phrase, I think, comes from the fact that many godly men in the Bible had significant experiences with the Lord on top of a mountain. God, you remember, gave his covenant to Noah on Mount Ararat when the ark came alighted there after the great flood. Abraham himself went up to Mount Moriah to sacrifice his son Isaac in obedience to the Lord, and at the last minute, the Lord intervened and provided the ram as a substitute for Isaac. Elijah defeated the prophets of Baal on top of Mount Carmel. Jesus himself was transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration as Moses and Elijah appeared with him and Peter, James, and John looked on with uh, awe. And here in our text, Moses has this you might say quintessential mountaintop experience with the Lord, one like no other. And in the next chapter, chapter 20, on that mountaintop, he will receive the Ten Commandments. In more modern times, Billy Graham, famous uh, evangelist, um, had a mountaintop experience in California at Forest Home Christian Conference Center. You can go there. And they have a plaque on the very rock where Dr. Graham knelt and uh, before his ministry became famous, he knelt there and promised the Lord that he would preach the Bible as the word of God. Uh, many young people have mountaintop experiences going to camp, which is why we're praying for our young people as they go to Hume Lake this week. Uh, I myself, as a fifth grader, I remember uh, consecrating my life to the Lord at Camp Seely, which is a Christian, was then a Christian camp in Crestline, 
California. Uh, little did I know as a fifth grader that years later I would be called back to Crestline and I spent 15 years there as a pastor. So mountaintop experiences can be significant, but the big question is, what do you do after a mountaintop experience? What should your life be like when you come down? Was it just a, a momentary emotional thing? And okay, nice, but then life goes on. Well, no, life should be different forever. And we're not left in the dark as to how Moses' mountaintop experience was to translate into the experience of the people of God because our chapter tells us God's purpose for his people. And it <clears throat> applies, first of all, to Israel, who were the chosen people of God in the Old Covenant, but also it applies to us as God's New Covenant people, the church. In a nutshell, our response to God's gracious salvation should be obedience and reverence so that as his channel for blessing the nations, we proclaim his glory. Exodus 19 is a hinge in the book of Exodus. Chapters 1 through 18, the theme is God's salvation. And it reveals God's power as he delivers Israel from bondage in Egypt. In chapter 19, we start a new section that goes through chapter 24. And the theme in this section is God's law, revealing both God's holiness and the holiness he expects from his people. And then Exodus 25 through 40, the theme is the tabernacle, where the theme is God's presence in worship among his people. But the entire book of Exodus shows us how God kept his covenant with Abraham back in Genesis 12 by delivering Abraham's descendants from slavery in Egypt and making them into a great nation for his purpose. Now in Exodus 19, it begins by telling us that three months after Israel left Egypt, they came into the wilderness of Sinai, and it says they camped in front of the mountain. And then in verse 3, it states, Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain. That mountain was Mount Sinai, where, as we'll see next time, the Lord gave the Ten Commandments, to Moses, but it goes back earlier in Exodus because when Moses met God at the burning bush, it was near Mount Sinai, and there the Lord promised in Exodus 3.12, certainly I will be with you, and this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. And now God has fulfilled that promise to Moses. He is there with all of the Israelites and their children and everyone, and God speaks to him, and I believe through him to us on that mountain. The first lesson that we learn is that God has graciously saved us so that we will be his own possession. We will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation to him. 
In a nutshell, God's message to Moses is in verses 4 through 6. He says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. The first lesson from those verses is that God's salvation is totally by grace and not by our own merit, by our own works. God tells Moses to remind Israel what he had done for them. Remember what he did for them? They were slaves. They were in bondage in Egypt. Moses was out on the backside of the desert and God spoke to him there at the burning bush and called him to go back and deliver his people. Moses obediently went back. Pharaoh refused to let the people go and hardened his heart. So God sent the ten plagues on Egypt. And then finally they let Israel go, but then Pharaoh pursued them. God parted the Red Sea. Israel went through. The sea went back on Pharaoh's pursuing army. And that whole scene of the Exodus is one of the great illustrations in the Bible of how God saves his people, how he saves us as his people in this era. He delivers us from hopeless slavery to Satan and his, his domain of darkness and delivers us into his kingdom of light. Then it says God bore Israel on eagles' wings. And it's a great picture from nature. Uh, eagles push their little ones out of the nest to teach them to fly. And they flutter around and kind of flop around, and most of them are in a free fall to the ground. And the mother eagle swoops down under the baby eaglet and lifts her, it up on his wings and takes it right back to the nest where it's safe. And what a beautiful picture that is of God's grace to us, especially when we're young and new believers. Um, we've seen that in just our last few messages. God delivers Israel, and what do they do? Grumble. Grumble, 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 grumble. They grumble because there's no water. They grumble because there's no food. They grumble because, again, there's no water. You know, it's just grumble city there. And what does God do for them? Well, when they grumble about no food, God doesn't rebuke them. He says to Moses, uh, I'm going to rain bread from heaven on them. And he brings the manna. And then they grumble about no water, and God doesn't rebuke them again, even though he should there, you'd think. But God says to Moses, I'm going to bring water out of that rock. And water flows. And what a beautiful picture it is of us, how early in our lives as believers, sometimes we have trials, and what do we do? Grumble, grumble, grumble. And God in his mercy treats us like a mother treats a little baby. You know, little babies are inconvenient little critters. You know, they wake you up at two in the morning and demand to be fed. They poop their diapers. They spit up all over your shoulder. 
that's who babies are. We bear with them, don't we? We treat them tenderly because they're young. And that's a picture, again, of God's grace with us. And then in verse 4, at the end, the Lord says, I brought you to myself. Isn't that a beautiful thing? I brought you to myself. Salvation is not just a fire insurance policy that you tuck away in a file drawer and hope someday you never need it, but maybe you will. Salvation is, at its heart, a relationship with the Father, where you come into a personal relationship with Him through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus is God's Passover lamb. Israel had to apply the blood of the lamb on their door to avoid that last plague and go out. And it's a picture. As you apply the blood of Jesus to your sin, you enter into a relationship with the Father. He brings us to himself through Jesus. And in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18, Peter says, Christ also died for sins once for all, the just, that's Jesus, for the unjust, that's us, notice, so that he might bring us to God. And I'm here to say, if you're a churchgoer, maybe you were raised in the church, but you don't have a relationship with Jesus, you're not saved. It's that simple. Salvation is you've come to God in a relationship with him through the Lord Jesus Christ, whom he provided. And that is salvation. Forty years later after this, at the end of the wilderness wanderings, Moses reminds Israel of, of God's words here in our text. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8, Moses says, For you're a holy people to the Lord your God. That's what God says here, a holy nation. The Lord has chosen you to be a people for his own possession. That's what God says here. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, the Lord did not set his love on you or choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery <clears throat> and from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. It was all of grace. It wasn't of works. Salvation is never a matter of your works, of your piling up good works. Now, some people think, well, that's true in the New Testament, but the Old Testament was a system of works. Uh, no, it wasn't. Two scholars, Peter Gentry and Stephen Wellam, point out that the Old Covenant was based on grace just as the New Covenant is. Here God tells uh, Israel that he chose them simply because he loved them. You know, they were just the objects of his choice. No one merits salvation. And it isn't that God foresaw that someday you would have faith or, or works. That would be based then on good works. No, God chose you because he set his love on you. And that's why we're saved. And that's why he keeps us. 
And so he does it to bring us into relationship with himself. Then, <clears throat> a second truth here is that God's salvation then brings us into this exclusive covenant relationship with himself. And many scholars point out that these verses follow the pattern of near, ancient Near Eastern covenants that were made between kings and their vassal people. Uh, there is a preamble summons by God in verse 3. That's followed by a historical prologue in verse 4. Then there are the stipulations of the covenant in verse 5, followed by blessings for obedience in verse 5 and 6, and then the acceptance of the covenant in the solemn assembly in verses 7 and 8. And <clears throat> Jason DeRucci, an Old Testament scholar, points out that the Mosaic covenant accomplished the first part of God's covenant with Abraham. You'll remember that God told Abraham, I am going to um, uh, bless you, and I'm going to make a great nation out of your descendants, and I'm going to give them the nation or the, the land of Canaan as their inheritance. That's the first part. That was accomplished under Moses. But there's the second part of the Abrahamic covenant. And that is God said, through your seed, I'm going to bless all the nations. And Dr. DeRucci points out, that part of the covenant is fulfilled through Jesus, who is the seed of Abraham, and through his church as we take the gospel to the nations. And <clears throat> so two things here. First of all, Moses then was the mediator of this old covenant. Uh, a mediator is a man who stands between God and the people and he mediates. He goes between them. And you see Moses doing that. He goes up on the mountain. God tells him something. He goes down on the mountain. He talks to the people. He goes back on the mountain. He talks to God for the people. He goes back down, gives them God's further message. And he's and in between, a go-between. Um, you notice that God, verse 20, it says, God came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. He didn't live up there. Many pagan gods, the pagans thought, our God lives on Mount Olympus or on Mount such and such. No, God had to come down to the mountaintop. In fact, Psalm 113 says that God has to humble himself to behold the things that are in heaven and on earth. He dwells on high, and that's why you need a mediator. You can't just boldly come into God's presence without a go-between. Um, Moses served that role for Israel under the old covenant. He instructs the people here how to get ready to meet with God. First of all, they had to wash their garments. It's a picture of being cleansed inwardly, before you come into the holy presence of God. Uh, when he tells them not to have marital relations in verse 15, that doesn't imply that the sexual relation in marriage is sinful, but under the old covenant, it was ceremonially defiling. The Israelites had to go through a cleansing ritual, and that set them apart from the many pagan nations that viewed sex as part of worship, even immoral sex, uh, Israel was distinct 
from that as the Lord's people. But Exodus 19 raises a dilemma, and that is this. If God wanted Israel brought near to him, why does he put all these restrictions and and, uh, keep them away from him? You know, he says, I, I brought you near to me. Now, you know, put the police yellow tape all the way around the mountain. And if anybody comes on the other side of that tape, they're going to get killed. And if the priests come up beyond that, they're going to get zapped. And if anybody wants to gaze on me, they're going to get zapped. Well, why does God draw them near and then keep them at arm's length? I believe the lesson is... God is teaching Israel and us that he is absolutely holy, more holy than we ever imagined, and that we are sinners. And so we can't just come barging into his presence. We need a mediator to go between us and God. Also, there are things of God that we shouldn't speculate on, pry into. Remember in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve sinned because They wanted to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God said, you can't do that. They did it anyway. And as a result, the human race was separated from God in judgment. There are things of God that are not revealed in the Bible that we have to treat with reverence and say, you know what? God hasn't spoken. I can't speculate. God is God and I am not God. So Moses was the mediator then under the Old Covenant, but Jesus Christ is our mediator under the New Covenant. The Old Covenant was restricted to Israel, uh, mediated through Moses, but the New Covenant extends to all nations, to all people groups through the church. In uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul instructs us to pray for all men, kings and others in authority and so on. And then he states this in verses 3 through 5. He says, this, that is our prayers for all people, is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And so Jesus is now the mediator of the new covenant. Dr. DeRucci explains three ways in which Jesus fulfilled Exodus 19, verses 4 through 6. First of all, he says the initial exodus typologically anticipated a greater, more universal second exodus that Jesus himself embodies. Second, Christ fulfilled the charge of this text as the perfect royal priest, bringing us to God and empowering us to serve him. And thirdly, Christ represented the nation Israel, succeeding where it failed, and by this magnifying God. And so as the holy king priest, Jesus perfectly represented Israel and reflected God's holiness. But don't miss the point. You need a mediator. Do you have one? And there's only one. It's the Lord Jesus Christ, eternal God, who took on human flesh and bore our sin on the cross. And so if you come to God and say, well, God, 
Here are my good works. God, I'm, I'm worthy. You're going to be like the people in Israel who said, hey, what's this guy Moses think? He can go up there by himself. I'm going. Zap. They perished. And if you come into God's holy presence and someday expect to stand before him at the judgment and present your good works, you're going to be awfully, awfully shocked. The only way you can come into his presence is through faith in a God-appointed mediator, and that mediator is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so put your trust in Jesus and in his death and resurrection on your behalf, and then the Bible says you have access to God. So God's salvation is completely by his grace, not by our merits. And it brings us into this exclusive covenant relationship with God through our mediator, the Lord Jesus. But also, these verses say that God's salvation means that we become his own possession. We become a kingdom of priests and we become a holy nation. Notice again verses 5 and 6. My own possession, Israel, is going to be among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine. God could have made everyone his possession. He chose Israel. And you, Israel, shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. If you say, well, that applied to Israel, well, it also applies to us because Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, writes this to the church. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So God's salvation means, first of all, we are his own possession. And that phrase is a technical phrase. Here's what it means. Uh, one commentator says, my own possession means special treasure belonging privately to a king. This implies special value as well as special relationship. And so even though God owns the entire earth, he owns his own people as his special treasure. Do you ever think of yourself that way? You are God's special treasure, not because you're something in yourself, but because you're something in Jesus. And Jesus is our mediator, as I just explained. And we have been bought with a price. And so we are set apart to God as his special treasure, like a king would guard his own jewels, his own treasure. But salvation also means, it says, that we are a kingdom of priests. Now, the phrase kingdom of priests and holy nation both expand on and explain um, my own possession. The phrase kingdom of priests doesn't occur anywhere else in the Old Testament. There's one place, Isaiah 61.6 6 says, you'll be called priests of the Lord, but nowhere else in the Old Testament does it call them a kingdom of priests. Um, but a priest was a, a mediator. In the Old Testament, the priest would take the people's sacrifice, go and offer it on the altar, and then present the blood there before the Lord. They were the go-between. And we are to be the mediators of the blessings of Abraham to the nations. 
In Revelation chapter 1 and verse 6, it says, And he, Jesus Christ, has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. And you know, one of the great truths they recovered during the Reformation is there is no separate class of priests in the church. In other words, to come to God, you don't have to go through a human uh, priest. You are the priest if you're a believer. All believers are priests. And through the Holy Spirit, it says in Ephesians 3, we all have access to the throne of God. We can come into his presence. Again, what an amazing privilege to go right into the throne room of God, the holy, holy, holy God, through the blood of Jesus as believer priests. And then, thirdly, we're a holy nation. God's salvation means we're a holy nation. And to be holy means to be set apart and devoted unto God and separate from all moral pollution. God is holy and he says, you shall be holy because I am holy. We are representatives of God. And that means there should be a distinction in how we think and how we act between us and the world. Now, I don't mean that Christians should be weird. Some Christians are. No, but we should be distinct. We should be different. People should look at our lives and say, what is it about you? You know, you don't seem to be seeking all the money and all the other stuff that the rest of us are all after. What, why are you different? And then we tell them we're different because we follow Jesus. Remember, Jesus said, he prayed in that upper room prayer right before he went to the cross, that his disciples would be in the world, but not of the world. And the thing that would make them distinct, he said, sanctify them by your word. Your word is truth. So the Bible tells us how to think, how to live distinctly from this evil world in which we live. So, First main point, God has graciously saved us so that we'll be his own possession, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, what should our response be? Two things. Our response should be obedience and reverence. First of all, obedience. In verse 5, God states, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. And then Moses goes down to the people and he tells them these words, and the people in verse 8 all respond, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Now some commentators say, well, they blew it at that point because they just put themselves under the law, and the law condemns. Uh, I don't think so because in Deuteronomy chapter 5, God commends this decision on their part. He says they, they spoke rightly when they said they would obey. Now the problem was, they spoke um, rather presumptuously. Um, you know that before they even left the camp at Mount Sinai, they were worshiping the golden calf while Moses was on the mountain. And so I agree with John Calvin in his commentary. He says that without any intention of deceiving God, they were carried away by a kind of headlong zeal and they deceived themselves. And I think we can all relate. It's easy to make a promise at a dramatic moment with the Lord and say, Lord, I'll obey you forever. Yeah, right. And then the next day, there we are doing our own wrong thing. Uh, 
we're just like Israel in that sense. But the point I want to make is this. A lifestyle of obedience is not opposed to God's grace. Some Christians think it is. I've been accused over the years at times of being legalistic. And when I've asked for clarification, I, I was told, um, you're legalistic because you preach obedience. Well, so does the New Testament <laughs> to Christians under grace. For example, in Titus chapter 2, Paul says that the grace of God instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. That's obedience. Or in John 14, Jesus, verse 21, said, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. If you're not obeying Jesus, you're not loving Jesus. Obedience shows our love for him. And so don't think, don't fall into this trap of, hey, I'm under grace, I can live as I please. No, you can only live as obedient in obedience to Jesus Christ. But then also our response to God's gracious salvation should be reverence and awe. We toss around kind of lightly these days the word awesome. Oh man, that was an awesome meal. Well, that wasn't really awesome, folks. What's awesome is Moses' encounter with God on Mount Sinai. I think the word is defined by this encounter. Uh, he goes up on the mountain. It'd be like walking up into the volcano in Hawaii right now. There were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud up on the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And the people were so afraid, it says in Hebrews 12, they begged Moses, don't let God speak to us. You talk to us, but we don't want to hear from God. This is too frightening. And, and Moses himself trembled with fear. And then the Lord descends on Mount Sinai in fire, and there's smoke like the smoke of a furnace that ascends. The whole mountain is quaking violently in an earthquake. And then the trumpet blasts grow louder and louder. And Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. And the people are in dread. If they touch the mountain, they're going to die. Uh, the closest thing I've come to that is I've been up on the peaks in a lightning storm. And suddenly it hits. And boom! And it about blows you off the mountain. And you're thinking, I'm going to die right here. You know, I'm done. And you're, you're so relieved when you get out of that situation. And here it instills awe. The book of Hebrews chapter 12 reports this chapter. And then here's the conclusion. Verses 28 and 29 of Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us therefore show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable or service, notice, with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. You know, I've mentioned to you over the years that um, one of the books that's influenced me the most, impacted me the most spiritually, is Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion. And the reason, one of the reasons is that as he begins that classic book, he exalts God 
and he lays us in the dust as sinners and shows the gap that's between us, and that instills worship. I'm convinced that the heart of worship is when you get a glimpse of who God is in his holiness and a glimpse of who you are as a sinner, and of course that magnifies what Jesus did at the cross, and the reaction is worship. Well, Calvin begins the Institutes by saying, we cannot seriously aspire to God before we become displeased, begin to become displeased with ourselves. In other words, as long as we're ignorant of our own sin, we bop along in life and think, hey, everything's cool, God's cool, I'm cool, no problem. And then when the Holy Spirit begins to convict you of sin, you realize, whoops, there's a major problem. (laughs) God is holy, and I'm not holy. Calvin continues. He says, again, it is certain that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless first he has looked upon God's face and then descends from contemplating him to scrutinize himself. And Calvin goes on to point out that wherever in the Bible, he says, the saints met God, he says, they were stricken uh, with dread and wonder, they were stricken and overcome whenever they felt the presence of God. Like Isaiah, remember, sees God on his throne. And he says, oh, woe is me, I'm undone. I'm finished. That kind of a vision. And I think we would benefit as you go on and read through the Institutes, Calvin often reverently refers to God as the majesty. The majesty. He revered God. And yes, we can come to God as a loving father and feel his warm embrace, but we need to also remember he is the majesty. He's in awe. He is the God of Exodus 19. And we only approach him with a certain amount of reverence. I remember years ago reading a college professor at a Christian college. And he was trying to tell his students they needed to fear God. And they argued with him the entire class and said, no, no, that's Old Testament. We don't need to fear God in the new. Excuse me. We must come to God with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. That's New Testament. And one of the characteristics of unbelievers, Romans 3.18, is this. There's no fear of God before their eyes. They don't fear God. Believers fear God. Now, why is God gracious to us in salvation? And that's the last thing to see here. His purpose for graciously saving us is this. As his channel... For blessing the nations, we are to proclaim his glory. Back to 1 Peter 2.9, it says that because we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, here's what we're to do. We are to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness, that was under when we didn't know the Lord, into his marvelous light. And so as I said, we're believer priests, We are to mediate the glorious presence of God, the person of God, to this world in which we live and proclaim the glory of our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the seed of Abraham. Through Jesus, all the nations will be blessed through the good news of Christ. 
And so the point is, God didn't save us to be bottles where we bottle his, his glory. He saved us to be funnels through whom his glory goes to all the people. He saved us to be channels, not to dam it up for ourselves, but to channel the glory of God through Jesus Christ and the good news. And in, Rome, in Galatians 3, Paul sums up the blessing of God to Abraham that we are to uh, extend to the nations in this way. Galatians 3, 6. Even so, he says, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That is the gospel in a nutshell. We are not saved by works. We're not saved by merit. We're saved by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's how we're reconciled to God. And that is such good news because most people think, oh, I've got to clean up my life. I've got to improve. I've got to get rid of this bad habit. No, you've got to believe in the Lord Jesus. And when you do, God takes the righteousness of Christ, credits it to your account. What a wonderful message that is. In the context of describing Abraham's relationship to God, Paul gives these two wonderful verses, Romans 4, 4, and 5. He says, Now to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, but as what it's due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies, notice, not the one who tries hard, not the one who cleans up his life, he justifies the ungodly. His faith is credited as righteousness. And so, if you're here and you've never done that, that's where you begin with God. You come to him as an ungodly sinner, and you trust in the sacrifice he made for your sins through Jesus on the cross, and then you become a believer priest, and now your job is to go to the nations, that is, those who don't know Jesus around us with the good news that God justifies sinners by faith in Christ alone. So that's our message. Philip Ryken <clears throat> observes that you have to decide whether you want to meet God at Mount Sinai or Mount Zion. If you want to meet him at Sinai, you better get your works together, but uh, the bad news is you can't ever compile enough obedience, enough good works to qualify to go up on that mountain with Moses. He was the only mediator. In the New Testament, Jesus is the only mediator. And if you want to meet God on Mount Zion, come to Jesus. Put your trust in him as your only mediator, and you have access to the very holy throne of God the Father by grace, through faith in Christ alone. Let's pray. Dear Father, I pray if any are here outside of Christ, they haven't been brought into a relationship with you, that you would be gracious to do that this morning, <clears throat> that they would renounce and turn from their own worth, their own merit, their own works as the way to be reconciled to you and would trust in the shed blood of the Lord Jesus alone. And then, as a holy people, set apart to you, obeying you, fearing you,
all of us, Lord, would go to those who have no hope and are without you in this world to proclaim the riches of your grace in Christ. And I ask in Jesus' name, amen.